Open your Bibles with me to the book of Esther. We are in our final week of Esther. Can you believe it? Esther 9 through 10. 10 is very, very, very short, three verses, uh, but it is a lengthier reading. As you're turning there in your Bibles, if you're new, newer to the Bible, uh, it's kind of split your Bible in half and go left. You've got, you'll, if you split it in half, you'll be in Psalms, then you'll be in Job, and then you'll be in Esther. But right here at the end of Esther chapter 9, Next week, we'll be starting our new series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, but for now, we'll be wrapping up Esther. So would you read with me? It will also be on the screen from the book of Esther. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adair, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and governors and royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Delphon and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Vesatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day for which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. 
as the days in which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and Mordecai had written them to do. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Amadatha, the enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and what they had faced in this matter, and of what happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants." Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days at Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people, and he spoke peace to all his people. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, Children's Church is dismissed as his crossroads. By the way, if you're newer and you're unsure of the age range of these classes, that information is in the bulletin so you know where your kiddos go. As our children make their way out for their time in the Word, we'll dive in here. The book of Esther ends the way it begins, with a feast. If the feasting of King Xerxes that opens the book is framed as lavish feasting and celebration that is ultimately foolish, a feast of folly, then the book ends with what it seems to be a feast rooted in wisdom and in good order, a feast of celebration that is godly. And it is remarkable, it is exceedingly remarkable Why is there so much ink spent on the institution of this feast? Because it's the first religious feast to be instituted since the days of Moses. That's why. And it's a religious feast whose institution is recorded in a book that makes no mention of religion. This is most interesting. There's no mention of God. 
No, no mention of Israel's land, of the temple. There's no mention of even prayer, though, as we've seen, it's clearly, it's clearly revealed to be prayer that's involved with their fasting. It's hinted at. It's implicit. And indeed, all the language of Esther is implicit when it comes to God. Even this religious festival makes no explicit reference to God. And yet, as using the very language of the Feast of Passover, uh, it includes a, a, a religious institution to recognize what had happened to the Jews for their relief and salvation. How astonishing that this... Queen Esther institutes a feast among her people that to this day is still celebrated. A feast uh, that is on the same, that is akin to the religious feasts of Moses. But like the feast of Passover, it is upon reflection a strange feast to observe. Yes, it celebrates the relief of the Jews from their enemies, as is repeatedly said here. But part of the relief of the Jews from their enemies entails the destruction of their enemies, the bloody violence against their enemies. Not unlike Passover, where we celebrate, yes, the release of Israel from Egypt at the greatest and most horrific last sign God performed in the land of Egypt, the death of every firstborn in all of Egypt. But because they had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, this angel of destruction passed over the Jewish households. They celebrate Passover, both the redemption of Israel, the miraculous redemption of Israel, and the judgment of God's enemies. It makes us uncomfortable. I don't know if you noted, I'm sure you did, when we confessed the Heidelberg Catechism question together, that why we have comfort from the Apostles' Creed when it says Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. I think we all heartily confirmed it brings me comfort that the judge himself stepped down from the judgment seat and received our judgment in our place. But then it went on to say, you remember, Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation. That's the part where maybe you slow down a bit. This makes us uncomfortable. And yet, the book of Esther here celebrates, rejoices in not only the great reversal that God's judgment brings them from, honor, or from shame to honor, but also the great reversal of God's judgment of bringing His enemies from honor into shame. Is this worthy of celebration or is this just cruel vindictiveness? Well, that's the question I want to delve into this morning as we look at the celebration that's here being instituted in depth. So would you pray with me that God Himself would walk us through this passage and guide us? Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word that has been preserved for us through the ages.
We're grateful for your spirit who attends the reading and study of your word. Uh, that opens eyes that can misperceive and ears that are hard of hearing. Open our hearts now, Lord, to you. Turn us toward your glorious presence through this scripture, we pray. Amen. Finally, Esther, the author, makes explicit what this whole book has been about, and that is reversal. A reversal of fortunes, a reversal of honor, a reversal of status, a reversal of condition, a reversal of, of glory. We've seen this reversal of fortunes quite dramatically mentioned here in verse 1 of chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out against the Jews to annihilate them from the empire. On that very day, the author points out, when the enemies of the Jews had hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. And the Jews gained mastery over their enemies, those who hated them. Likewise, verse 22, we read this great reversal described in this way. That God had, on that day and month, had turned them from sorrow to gladness, from mourning into a holiday. But not only has He reversed their fortunes, their fates, the divine destiny of His people, but He has reversed the person's honors as well, the honor that different persons had received. We saw that for the Jews. The Jews were despised. They were hated in an empire that apparently readily accepted a decree to annihilate them. They went from being a people who were lived under shame and hiding to a people who will look at it with me in verses 2 to 3 again of chapter 9 to a people of great honor, a people who were feared. Verse 2, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, those who sought to lay hands on them, as Xerxes put it. And no one could withstand them, for the fear of them had fallen all people. All the officials of the province of the satraps, the governors, the royal agents also helped them. They didn't just have the generalized fear of the Jews falling upon their neighbors, but the authorities, those very people who were terrifying to them before, because they were going to enforce this edict this, of anti-Semitism, they are now their friends. They now have official support from the governors, from the mayors, from, from the city leaders and city councils are now backing them. The word there, helped them, can be translated, and it's translated elsewhere in Esther as honored them. They received honor where they had received shame. Of course, Esther, we've seen her great reversal from an orphan who was trafficked to a queen, who a, a queen with great authority, a queen who is effective in the wielding of her authority. Did you notice the change here in chapter 9? In all the other instances where the queen comes before the king, she must do so with great obsequiences, and she just sort of has to bow down and use all these, uh, these sort of phrases of diplomacy to, gain, to even have an, an, an audience with Xerxes. But now what happens? Did you notice it's Xerxes who initiates? All right, we, 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 we execute your command, queen. What, what, what's next? In fact, the king seems rather 
cold, as he often does, about the brutal deaths of so many of his people. That's 500. What do they do in the rest of the empire? That's kind of how he phrases it. What, what, what's next, queen? Likewise, we've seen this great reversal with Mordecai and Haman. Haman was the exalted one, the honored one, before whom everyone bowed the knee, the second in command, and now Mordecai has been honored, highly honored. Look at verse 4, a remarkable phrase that also, again, uh, echoes the, the story of Israel's exile with Moses. But look at verse 4 with me. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. This seems to be a very deliberate echo of Exodus chapter 11. Look at it on the screen. Exodus chapter 11. And the Lord gave, is it there yet? There, there we go. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, the Jews, much like what we're seeing here in Persia. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. The man Moses and the man Mordecai are given a divinely inspired, if you will, honor that transcends the land, that transcends the empire. This is a massive reversal, clearly of divine origin. But this reversal is not just a restoration to balance of what was the previous case. Reversal isn't just a restoring of things to how they were, which wasn't great before Haman's decree. Right? Esther and Mordecai were exiles who lived in fear. There's a reason why Mordecai told his cousin Esther, don't tell anyone you're Jewish. She lived in fear before Haman's decree. Haman's decree just revealed what's swimming in the water. But this reversal is, not, is, 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 a, is a transition of status and an increase of status. Not a mere return to a, the pre-ruptured scene, but now the Jews have mastery. They have triumph over. They have the upper hand, whereas before they didn't. And we see that played out in the battle in verses 5 through 19 that is um, narrated. The details aren't given, just the results. Now, the battle here, I want to argue that Esther, the book of Esther here is portraying the battle as not vindictive uh, bloodlust, but as a battle of honor is how it is being portrayed by the author. The language of self-defense we've already seen is throughout the text. We saw the self-defense back in chapter 8, verse 11 in Mordecai's edict. You might recall that. He says the Jews in every, have the right in every city to gather and to defend themselves. They have the right to form militias, to destroy, to kill, and annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. So this is a defensive measure. Moreover, we see the repeated phrase, enemy and those who hated them. Those two show up in parallel constantly in chapter 9. Verse 1, we read that those who, their enemies who, who sought to gain mastery, they gained mastery over those who hated them. Or again in verse 5, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. By the way, that sounds quite cruel. They did as they pleased. 
really what it simply means is what they was earlier stated. They could not be withstood. They could not be resisted. They were able to execute their self-defense without fail. So it's not that they sort of treated them with an arbitrary sort of cruelty, but that they had, they had full reign in their self-defense. And likewise, we see it continued in verse 10 of chapter 9. That, um, the ten sons of Haman, who was the enemy of the Jews, that's repeated again in verse 24. He was the enemy of the Jews. In verse 22, we read, um, the days when the Jews got relief from their enemies. And so the language here is constantly those that have been on the attack and the aggressors that they are defending against. Even Esther's, as it's been called, bloody request in verses 11 through 14, when she appears before the king, and at first blush, it seems like, it seems like a bloodthirsty sort of vengeance. Because she says, that's great, king, what we did here today. Let's do it again tomorrow. But is that really what, uh, is, is, is that how the narrator paints this? It's how we, we moderns read it. But I, I don't think that's fair in how she is going about requesting a lawful extension of a day for self-defense in the city of Susa. Carol Bechtel, uh, who's a theologian, she, she writes this in her commentary. She says, it seems patently unfair to characterize Esther as bloodthirsty here. Her re request is completely consistent with the rest of the book. She's an extremely intelligent leader. She is able to take the measure of her enemies and anticipate their attack. Her concern here is for the safety of her people. It is not a bloodthirsty, let's kick them while they're down. The fact that there's 300 more deaths means there were 300 more haters who sought their lives. This is more akin to the Allied forces freeing the Jews out of uh, concentration camps and killing Nazi soldiers than it is to the innocent being slaughtered by a vengeful, angry queen, which is often the way Esther has been portrayed here. The conclusion is that the Jews find relief from their enemies. It's repeated three times in verses uh, 16 through 18. They found relief. They found rest. All the same word. They found relief again in verse 18. They rested on the 15th day. And verse 22 summarizes it as the days in which the Jews got relief from their enemies. This is what this mission is about is relief from persecution and from oppression. In fact, it's interesting that what the Jews celebrate isn't their superior military uh, acts or their prevailing self-defense measures, but what they celebrate on those days that are being marked as Purim is that they have relief. They finally have rest from those who harass them and threaten their lives. That's what they're celebrating is freedom from oppression, not celebrating how they crushed all these enemies. And yet, 
Their celebration isn't just about relief. It is also about justice being done. It's not just escape from oppression. It is also about justice being done to the oppressors, being executed against the oppressors. And we saw that too in the edict last week, the edict of, of Mordecai in verse 13. Not only does it describe what the Jews are being uh, empowered to do as self-defense, but also, do you remember this from verse 13 of chapter 8? To take vengeance on their enemies. But as we mentioned, vengeance here is not personal revenge. When that word is used in the Old Testament, it is, it is a word of justice, not a sort of vigilante act of getting personal revenge. That is not the word that's used to describe that. In fact, the word vengeance is typically used to describe God's act of justice. God never has need to take personal revenge, but He does have need to execute vengeance or justice. There are also themes that many students of Esther have connected to this controversial idea of holy war. Now, holy war in Scripture describes Israel's conquest of their enemies and God's enemies, both by triumphing over those who would resist God's people in their pursuit of God's destiny for Israel, and as executing God's justice against people for their incorrigible evil. That's how the Scriptures portray holy war, especially in the Pentateuch, in, in, in this, what happens in Egypt, what happens in the land of Canaan, what happens in the days of conquest with Joshua. These are portrayed in that way. And there are, there are clear connections to holy war language here in Esther. The most striking is the use of using the fear of the Jews falling on their enemies. As we saw last week, that is, that's what happens in the Exodus. The fear of the Jews falls on all the peoples and they all tremble. Uh, we saw that last week. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, Psalm, Psalm 105 talks about the fear and dread of the Jews falling on uh, Egypt. Egypt was glad when they departed. We're glad to get rid of those people, right? Because the, the dread of them had fallen on them. Uh, we saw this in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 11.25, for instance, it says, The Lord your God will lay the dread of you and the fear of you on all the land on which you set foot. Or Rahab in the book of Joshua. Remember Rahab? Rahab welcomes these Jewish spies into her home, betraying her own people. And when she explains why she's done it, she says, I know that the Lord your God has given you this land. The fear of you has fallen upon us and our hearts have melted. There's also a clear connection with this repetition of the idea of plunder. They did not lay hands on the plunder. The author really wants to make that clear. Three times he repeats, they did not lay hands on the plunder. They did not lay hands on the plunder. They did not lay hands on the plunder. Why? Well, I think that too ties back to some of the origin story of the conflict here. If you remember, Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites. They call him Haman, Haman the Agagite. Agag was the king Saul confronted and failed to do holy war against him. 
failed to complete holy war, preserved Agag's life, and then kept the cream of the crop stuff for himself, Saul did. And who is Mordecai? We're told back in chapter 2 that Mordecai is the son of Kish, Saul's father. So as one commentator put it, it seems evident that Mordecai rises on the very point at which Saul fell. The people did not take the plunder the way Saul took the plunder for himself. But it's also important to note here that this is not holy war as we see it in Canaan. They do not attack a particular geography or a particular clan. They attack their enemies. This is not a war against Amalekites. It's a war against anti-Semites who have organized and rallied to murder the Jewish population. So this is not genocide as the way uh, Haman's decree was genocide against all the Jews of the empire. This is a very particularly uh, justice against those who would murder God's people. And in this, there is a justified punitive action taking place. Because we can say all's well and good that, okay, Queen Esther asked for an extension because she knew there were yet more threats in the city of Susa against her Jewish people. But what about the hanging of Haman's sons? That seems especially cruel. They were already dead. Why hang their bodies up in the square? What could be the possible point of that? Well, again, the text presents this not as a cruel vindictiveness from the queen, but as a fitting reversal of honor, shaming Haman's household as he intended to shame Mordecai and all of his people. There's a kind of balance here, and, and, and it is an apt answer to the boasts and honor and pride of Haman. Do you remember when Haman came home so upset that Mordecai didn't bow the knee to him. And he, the, what did he do? He, he rehearsed his glory and honor before his wife and friends. The king advanced me to the highest status. I'm above all my peers. I have all this wealth. And I have 10 sons, which was the ideal number in Persia. I am the most, I have the best life now. I'm the most excellent person I know. My glory is unsurpassed. And it's not just his wealth, it's his 10 sons who apparently like father, like son, were organizing to kill the Jews. As Haman intended to do to Mordecai, it was fitting and apt that it should be done to Haman and to his household. The crime fits, or rather the punishment fits the crime. Esther's actions surely are precautionary. It was surely a sort of... Uh, uh, a way to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, encourage others not to attack Jews in the future, but it was also punitive. It was also a punishment that fit the crime. This notion of retributive or retaliatory justice runs throughout our scriptures. They are important part of how we understand justice. And it can be phrased as, as you have done to others and even intended to do to them, so it will be done to you. 
even according to the law of Moses, if you lied, if you perjured yourself in order to bring loss to your opponent in the court, even if that loss never happened and you were caught in your lie, not only were you punished for the lie, whatever loss you intended to bring on your opponent was brought to you. But it's not just the Moses. All the prophets teach this principle. Obadiah says this, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, so it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return to your own head. This is the precise language that's spoken here in chapter 9, verse 25. Look at that verse with me. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that that Haman's evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. With the result of what? He and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. It is only fitting. It is only just. Lamentation says, You will repay them, O Lord, according to the works of their hands. Not just Moses and the prophets, but even the end of our Bibles in Revelation. A voice from heaven tells John regarding the sins of Babylon, O God, pay her back as she herself has paid others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. The evil she did to the nations, may it be done to her, is the cry of heaven against the wickedness on earth. This isn't just law. I want you to know that this is also the gospel. Remember Jesus' teachings. Judge not, and you won't be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, so it will be used toward you. This is not just the teachings of Moses and the prophets and Jesus himself. It was the teachings of all the apostles. On the screen, you'll see from Paul's letter to the Second Thessalonians, where he writes to a people who are suffering and they're being persecuted and they're oppressed. And he says, yet you're persevering. And I'm so encouraged. And this is what he says about their perseverance under pressure. This is evidence, your perseverance and suffering, of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted. So again, God's judgment... His salvific judgment gives relief and it afflicts the afflictors. This is always the case in Scripture. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, and look, here's our word. This is the same word in Greek that translates the Hebrew word that we saw in Esther 8.13, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This is heavy stuff. This is sobering. And at first it might seem to us very disturbing and ugly. But I want to point us to where we see it in its proper frame and where I think we see its beauty. And of course, you know what I'm talking about. 
we look to the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, which we celebrate, we celebrate at the Lord's table, we celebrate in our praise and worship, we, we, we confess it in our prayers and confession of sin, in our life of faith, that because Jesus received what was coming to us, because what we did to Jesus revealed who we are, when God came down to humanity, what was our response? To receive him with honor and glory. Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. We rejected him. We hated him. We murdered God. We have been exposed at the cross. And that's the shaming part of the cross. We have been exposed in it. We see ourselves there crying out with the mockers. But we also see in Christ's brutal sufferings, justice. What we ought to have received, what was our just due, he carried. And you know what this means? Your just due does not hang over your head anymore. As you have done, it has not been done to you. It has been done to Christ. And as he has done, has been given to you. There is no more condemnation for you, dear Christian. There is no curse that hangs over you. God is not angry in his wrath toward you. Over your head, now and for the rest of eternity, is the smile of your Father, whose justice has been fully satisfied. No grudge, no anger, there's none of this. Because God dealt with your sins. He dealt with them justly. So you are forgiven. You are free. But not only do we celebrate the retributive justice of God put on display at the cross and what it means for us, we celebrate the resurrection and exaltation of Christ, that Christ has been rightly honored. And we see this here, that there's a fitting honor that has been taken from enemies who did not wear that honor well to the people of God who do now wear it well. We see that transition with the Jews. The Jews now who were dishonored now are honored. Did you notice that strange verse, chapter 10, verse 1? Sort of this weird aside about taxation. What on earth has that to do with the price of tea in China? Like, why is that there? Well, the reason is, I think because it shows that the king prospered while the Jews were honored. Many readers of Esther rightly, I think, hear echoes of Genesis 12:3 here. I will bless you, Abraham, and your descendants, and those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. As they do to you, so will be done to them. And as the Jewish people are honored, the whole empire thrives. They speak words of peace and truth, we see, in their letters. But really quickly here, we see Esther's effectual decrees and righteous laws. She is a, not just an intelligent queen, she's a competent queen. The decrees of Xerxes, nobody knows what they are. We forgot. His supposedly irrevocable law, no one knows what they are. Haman's edict, utterly frustrated and undermined. 
within one year of its release. Haman, ineffectual lawmaker. Xerxes, a fool. To this day, my friends, Esther's decree is obeyed in Israel. That is, that is an effectual queen. <laughs> she rightly deserved honor. Likewise with, with Mordecai. Mordecai makes wise and effective laws in the edict that we saw him make last week. He benefits the empire. He's well-loved because he cares for, as the closing verse says, the welfare of his people. He was a good leader. He sought the good of them, not the good of himself. And he spoke peace, not threat, with his power over his people. This is a worthy recipient of honor. The Jews, Esther, Mordecai. And guys, the one question, as our staff read this and studied this text together, the question was like, why is Xerxes still there? Why is he still king? Like, we've been set up the whole time for his fall. He's a fool, right? He's, he's sort of a puppet the whole time, manipulated, and yet here he is still in power. And I love the fact that Esther keeps him in power because that's the way it is in exile. That's the way it is for us. But here's the good news. The right man has been honored by God. Though the world may honor fools, the right man has been honored by God. In this case, we see Esther and Mordecai honored. But in the case for us, Jesus, whom the world rejected, whom the world put to death, has been honored with the highest authority there is on heaven and on earth. And at his name, one day, every knee on earth and in heaven and below the earth will bow to this highly honored man. And that's good news because there's still Xerxes ruling. Whether it's presidents or prime ministers, whether it's dictators and despots, whether it's ayatollahs or bishops, whatever corrupted religious political authorities that threaten our lives, whatever fools have keys to the nuclear codes, we know who reigns. We know who sits on his throne. And so we rejoice even while Xerxes still sits on his throne. And not just at a global scale in our own lives. Who, who exercises authority in your life that is threatening. Maybe it's yourself. It's dangerous for me to be the one in charge of my life. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's coworkers. Maybe it's, it's, it's larger family. But remember this. The determinative reality, the determining factor in your present moment is not Xerxes. It's Jesus Christ who's been exalted and who is actively reigning right now in your life, in your marriage, in your family, at work. He is in control. He is reigning. And one day, though now only a few billion bow the knee to him, one day all the world will bow, all the angels and all the demons, when he comes to bring finally full relief and full justice. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is truth. We thank you for the justice revealed at the cross and for the mercy that is at the same time revealed.
that the justifier of the ungodly has accomplished justice at Calvary. And Lord, that is a, we know that prepares us for the day when you will return with hope, whether it's with enemies that threaten us, Lord, around our world or in our own lives. We entrust them to you, knowing that vengeance is yours. In the meantime, Lord, we bow our knees to you. We ask and invite you, Lord, to come and dwell in us, fill us with your strength and your kindness, your goodness, your mercy, and your righteousness, that we might be worthy of honor, the honor you've bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ.